Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Craig R. Smith to discuss his book, Confessions of a Presidential Speechwriter. Thanks for tuning in. An avid high school debater and an enthusiastic student body president, Craig Smith seemed destined for a life in public service from an early age. As a sought-after speechwriter, Smith had a front-row seat at some of the most important events of the 20th century, meeting with Robert Kennedy and Richard Nixon, advising Governor Ronald Reagan, writing for President Ford, serving as a campaign manager for a major U.S. senator's re-election campaign, and writing speeches for a contender for the Republican nomination for president. Life in the volatile world of politics wasn't always easy, however, and as a closeted gay man, Smith struggled to reconcile his private and professional lives. In his revealing memoir, Confessions of a Presidential Speechwriter, Smith sheds light on what it takes to make it as a speechwriter in a field where the only constant is change. While bouncing in and out of the academic world, Smith transitions from consultantships with George H.W. Bush in the Republican Caucus of the U.S. Senate to a position with Chrysler CEO Lee Iacocca. When Smith returns to Washington, D.C. as president and founder of the Freedom of Expression Foundation, he becomes a leading player on First Amendment issues in the nation's capital. Returning at long last to academia, Smith finds happiness coming out of the closet and reaping the benefits of a dedicated and highly successful career. I first spoke with Craig and his co-writer Michael Hyde earlier this season on the show about their book, The Call, Eloquence in the Service of Truth, and I'm super excited to welcome Craig back to talk about his confessions here on the MSU Press Podcast. Craig, thank you so much for joining me again today. I'm happy to be here. I really am interested in how the confessions you you say in the preface that you undertook writing the the memoir as a means of testing the idea that you had been the first person with a communications degree to serve as a speechwriter in the White House. Could you say a little bit about this idea of the memoir as a kind of, you know, evidence of how well you were trained for the position you ultimately uh, had? Yeah, it was it was interesting to note that a lot of times the people that were hired as speechwriters before me were press agents. They came out, some of them came out of journalism. Jimmy Carter hired a novelist to write his speeches, and and we know where that went. And so, you know, it it was just surprising. Now, there there were people who were speechwriters who had had some courses in rhetoric, like Ken Kachigian, most notably, who wrote for Nixon and Reagan. But he was a poli-sci major. He wasn't, he wasn't a communications major, as I was. As a communication major, I focused on rhetorical theory, the history of rhetorical theory. And as you know, Aristotle defined rhetoric as finding, in any given case, the available means of persuasion. And so you get this huge catalog of means of persuasion, whether it's credibility building, appeals to the emotions, logic, evidence, style and language, delivery. All of those things you have to master if you're going to be a speechwriter and serve the voice of your client. You know, and that connection between your academic work and that actual writing, you you pitch that in the book begins with your sort of moment of meeting Nixon, where you presented him with a copies of copy of your master's thesis on some of Reagan's speaking. 
Could you say a little bit about how, you know, work in academia led to those political connections? Well, I was uh, finishing my master's degree, and I did it on Ronald Reagan's run for governor in 1966. So the degree was finished in, in 67. And I knew that Nixon was thinking about running for president again. And I'd, I'd been a big fan of, of Nixon's because he'd been a, a college debater like me. He'd come from Southern California like me. And he had connections to the Navy. Uh, my father was, a, was an officer and, and, and Nixon served in World War II. And so for me, he was, and, and he was a moderate Republican, which is where I was at the time. And so I thought that he was going to be threatened for the nomination by Ronald Reagan. And so when I finished my, my master's thesis on, on Reagan's run for the governorship, I made an appointment and went over and delivered it to Nixon. And, and we talked about speeches and so on and so forth. Eventually, I had a chance to join his speechwriting staff uh, once he was elected, but I chose to finish my PhD instead and become a professor. So I, I was not involved with the Nixon administration. And it just became ironic that once Ford became president, I eventually was, was tapped to be a speechwriter for him. You mentioned that your dad was in the Navy and that you thought of yourself as a moderate sort of Republican at that period when you met Nixon and were finishing up your graduate work. I wonder if we could delve into that a little bit. I, I suppose listeners will find it, you know, a little bit odd to hear that you came out of the closet as a gay man toward the end of your career uh, and that you spent your life as a lifelong Republican. Could you say a little bit about how you came to those beliefs and, and what the sort of motivation was? Yeah, my father was raised on a farm. And that the family lost the farm in the Depression, and he went into the Navy, and he was on the conservative side of the spectrum. My mother, on the other hand, her brothers, and sometimes when, when she was a, a little kid, worked in the coal mines. Her father shaved her head and made her into one of those boys that kind of ran into the coal mine to trip the wires to pump out the methane gas. She became a fan of John L. Lewis, who was the union organizer for the coal miners because they were treated so badly uh, with all the diseases and all the other things that were going on. And so my mother was basically on the socialist side of the spectrum, and her relatives were on, on that side. And so the, I was raised listening to debates between the conservative side, my father's side, and my mother's side. And over time, I just became more and more convinced that the conservative side was the better way to go for America and for me. Could you say a little bit about what you took to be the conservative side? Because I get the sense from the course of the memoir that it's a slightly different kind of conservatism than we think of, you know, particularly here in May of 2022, where we're thinking about, you know, very particular kinds of issues involving conservatism that I know are somewhat distant from the kinds of things you're thinking of here. Yeah, as a genuine conservative, I consider myself, first of all, an originalist. I believe that the Constitution should be interpreted in the way it was meant at the, at the time of its passage, along with all of the amendments, including the 14th Amendment. And so a strict reading of the Constitution is, is part of my ideology. But in many ways, that branches off from what some people on the radical right interpret things to mean. The First Amendment is dear to me. I think freedom of expression is very important. But there are things that are not protected by the First Amendment. You can't commit treason. You can't libel. You can't slander. You can't present a true threat. You can't advocate for insurrection. 
people who do that, in my opinion, are not true conservatives. I also uh, just had an article come out on what I consider to be a correct reading of the Second Amendment, which really leaves gun control to the states in order for them to form militias. It's, it's very clear. And a conservative like Justice Scalia, who overrules that in the Heller decision and later in, in, in the McDonald decision on gun control, in my opinion, are not true conservatives. They're, they're cherry-picking history to rationalize uh, a citizen's right to bear arms, which is not what's granted in the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment says the citizens have a right to bear arms so we can form a militia. And all through the debates, it's very clear that state power over guns is what is at issue and what they're protecting in the Second Amendment. Thanks for that. Could you, I will get to some of your, some of your advocacy around Second Amendment issues that happens a little bit later in the course of the memoir and and some of those other activities I think will come up in the conversation. But I'm interested really in how those positions and your sort of early interests in speech writing, you know, this kind of had this moment where you met with Nixon and started thinking about doing that kind of stuff. How does that culminate in the kind of appointment to write for President Ford? Well, um, I was I was teaching at the University of Virginia at that time, and I went down to uh, the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill to give a, a guest lecture in the morning. And at noon, the president was sp- to speak. Uh, president Ford was coming in to speak to the future homemakers of America. And uh, we went to hear his speech, and it really wasn't very good. Um, it was kind of rambling and a little disorganized. And I was really stunned that a president wouldn't have a speech that met the basic standards of you know, what you teach in public speaking courses on, on campuses. And so I, I went home and, and wrote a five-page single-space constructive, as I could make it, criticism of what the president said. And a week later, I was called by the director of White House personnel. And so I went to the White House for an interview, and I, I started with him. Uh, his name was Doug Smith, and he passed me on to Bob Orban, who was the editor for the speechwriters. Uh, he'd been a comedy writer for Red Skelton and Dick Gregory. And I kind of passed my interview with him, and he took me in to see Bob Hartman, who was counselor to the president for the speechwriters, and, uh, and, and a good friend of the president's also. And I knew at that point that at any point I said the wrong thing or didn't measure up to what they were looking for, I'd be ushered out the door. And at the end of my interview with Hartman, he took me in and introduced me to the president and said, you know, pending security clearance, uh, words that reverberated in my head with great fear. Uh, this will be your new speechwriter. And he's a, a professor at the, at the University of Virginia. And the first thing that the president said to me was, professors haven't done very well here. Uh, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. President, why is that? And he said, because they try to make me more eloquent than I want to be. I want to speak the language of the common man. Do you think you can make that happen? And I remember saying to the president, Mr. President, Franklin Roosevelt is remembered for a lot of lines. One of them is, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That's a very simple sentence, but it has terrific rhythm and it also has alliteration, but all the words are one syllable. And he was kind of taken by that. And, and then we went off and I, I got my security clearance because I'd been, you know, I was a non-practicing homosexual. And so there was nothing I needed to confess and no one who could testify otherwise. So I stayed in the closet and I, you know, I vacillated between being very excited about writing speeches for the president and being paranoid about being outed, although there was no way that could happen. 
It was just something I was, you know, always worried about. Well, and I imagine justifiably so. What what do you suppose would have been the response had you been discovered? Would I mean job loss for sure, and then what other kinds of things? Oh yeah, out the door, right right out the door. Uh, you know, when Ronald Reagan became governor, there was a whole ring of Republican conservative homosexuals that were discovered around Reagan, and they were all fired. And so I I had you know that was in '68. And here I am in 76. So I knew firsthand what would happen if I had been outed or discovered in any way as a homosexual in the White House. How did that shade the work that you did there? You know, is that something that you thought of sort of all the time? And and did it have a chilling effect on your relationships with people on the staff or with, you know, with the folks that you were working with? No, I, I, uh, I made some friends. I, I became close to the president. I actually uh, his son, Steve, was not doing very, very well uh, in college at, at Utah State. And he asked me, you know, what what should I do about that? And I asked him what Steve was interested in. And he said, well, he's interested in animal husbandry. He thought this was going to work out at Utah State. and It didn't. And I said, well, why don't you try Cal Poly San Luis Obispo? They have a very good program. And Steve switched over there and eventually graduated successfully. But that's how close I was to the president. And, you know, you just when you're in the closet, the deeper you get in the closet, the better you are at acting. I mean, that's the agency of closeted homosexuality. You, you, you have to project a persona that's not your own and learn to live with that. And sometimes that can, you know, be very hard on people. Uh, I was able to cope with it. I wonder too, not if there's a relationship between that sort of life experience, that need for your personal life and the work in the professional realm as a speechwriter. I mean, because the task is not entirely dissimilar, you know, be tasked with speaking on behalf of someone else, maybe doing so in a way that you wouldn't speak yourself or that maybe you wouldn't even project for them to speak or that isn't necessarily representative of like their actual speaking. Do you, do you feel like there was something uh, uh, about the writing for others that appealed to you because of that circumstance in the closet? Yeah, I think I, I learned about, you know, your persona is a projection of your psyche, but it's it's the persona that you want people to see. And so one of the things I always did with clients is what what persona should be here? And I thought that Gerald Ford was very authentic when he said he wanted to speak the language of the common man. Uh, because he was a common man, although he, you know, he went to Yale Law School and graduated in the top third of the class. Ford was brighter than people gave him credit for. He was just awkward physically, and that carried over and dented his persona, his real persona, which was a bright guy who was very, very well-intentioned. And so I wrote to project that persona. When I went to work for George H.W. Bush, I found that I was dealing with a very intellectual genuinely gentle man. And uh, eventually this would would lead to splits in in the speech writing staff of of George Bush between those people who wanted him to be the man who was bringing us a kinder, gentler nation, which I thought was perfectly consistent with his personality. He was a kinder, gentler man. And those that wanted that Texas kind of, you know, boot-kicking persona and so if, if you look at the acceptance speech of, of George H.W. Bush in 1988, you get two different personas. Nobody seemed to notice that, but you get the kinder, gentler uh, man looking at a thousand points of light 
uh, you know, to get people to rescue one another, as opposed to the no new taxes, read my lips, tough guy. And I, that was, that speech worked well. It, we went from uh, 10 points down in the polls behind Dukakis to seven points up. But for me, it wasn't a consistent speech, but nobody seemed to notice that. And, and, and it, did, it did work. Both Kinder, Gentler Nation and Read My Lips were quoted over and over again, even though they represent two different personas to me. You know, it's interesting that like what sticks out from a speech and what has an effect in the world. On an earlier episode of the show, I interviewed a rhetorician who studied um, presidential rhetoric of peace, who was talking about how do, how do presidents talk about the end of war and how do they talk about what happens, you know, after, after we withdraw or we stop active force, like what kinds of things are said and how, what kind of attitude are they trying to um, inculcate in the nation? And one of the things that we talked quite a bit about was this like real question about what can one accomplish with a presidential speech? You know, what, what is its function? What does it do? You know, what kinds of practical things could result? Did you feel as a speechwriter, you know, for these powerful leaders that you were able to like accomplish things in the culture or that you were able to exert, you know, some kind of power over the, the flow of the nation or history itself? Well, I, I, one way in which that happened was, you know, when I was working for Ford in, in the summer of 76, we had the bicentennial and the president wanted to give six interlocked speeches that were like chapters of a book. And eventually they were published as a, as a little book. And in the course of calling the nation to its patriotic values, the president closed the gap between him and, and Carter and, and then with his acceptance speech, closed the gap further. And at the end of the first debate, the race was dead even. Uh, he eventually lost it because he misspoke himself in the second debate and didn't recover from that. But that was a very pragmatic look at how you could change things with speeches. That was all done by, by rhetoric, the, the closing of that gap and making that race even. Now, once you have credibility with the president as a speechwriter, you can begin very gently to suggest policy changes. And one of the policy changes that I suggested to the president was that we vastly exp expand uh, the food bank that we had from an agricultural surplus. And the president signed off on my memo and said, as soon as we're reelected, we will do that. And of course we weren't reelected, but you can have influence as a speechwriter once you get the trust of the president. We've sort of glossed over it a little bit, but that's an interesting kind of peek behind the curtain of the day-to-day -day machinations. Like you're producing memos, you're taking meetings. Like one thing that occurred to me in thinking about your book as the sort of test case for education and communication, right? Like I've trained for this, I'm now putting it, putting it in practice, is how you know, relatively recent, the idea that the president has a stable full of speechwriters who do this sort of wonky analysis of what gets said and how, how much it moves the needle. Could you say a little bit about like what that process is like and how it changed over the course of your doing that work? Well, we, in, we inherited the Nixon organizational structure, which was a very good one. If you were writing a, a major speech for the president, you got direct access to the president. That changed after Ford went out and Carter came in and Carter made the speechwriters go through the director of communication and often did not have direct communication with them. And I think it showed in his speeches. 
the structure that the that Nixon used and, and we used was there were five full-time speechwriters and assignments just rotated through them. All five were generalists. If you didn't feel qualified to do a speech that came your way, you could pass on it and then and then get the next one. Under us was a layer of about 10 researchers that checked all of our facts. We were extremely careful that the president never misspoke himself, never said something that wasn't true. So that was all checked. And then if the speech was on agriculture, the speech would be sent over to the Department of Agriculture to look at it. Uh, If it was on labor, it would go over to the Department of Labor. This was called staffing. And sometimes the, the staffing process would get in the way because the person who, who looked at the speech to see that it was consistent with policy, and that's all they were supposed to do, would start rewriting the speech. And we would have to then undo it. I, I sent a, a speech over one time to the State Department, and they changed my use of the word America to United States over and over again. Well, that has a very different feel to it. And if the speech is patriotic, I want to say America, because I think that's more in that value zone. So uh, that, that was the process, and that was basically how it worked. So if, you, if I had a big speech and it was assigned to me, I would go in and I'd meet with the president, and I, I would say, you know, what do you want to say here? What about these ideas? Here's what I think you might want to say. And then I would go and, and do drafts. In the modern era, and I include the board administration in that, we were lucky if we had time to do six drafts of the speech. If you go to Hyde Park and you look at the Roosevelt speeches, many of them went through 10, 12 drafts. Uh, So they were a little more polished because they had a little more time to deal with it. And also Roosevelt was a good editor. He had been editor of the Harvard Crimson uh, when he was in school. And so you, you sometimes you have clients like Roosevelt and Reagan who marked up their speeches, or you have clients like Ford who barely made any changes at all. You know, I'm thinking about in addition to that sort of the time intensity that you're talking about, there's also a sort of increasing media scrutiny, right? There's like, we've got much more ability to connect via television, you know, than than there was during the Roosevelt administration. There's much, obviously, um, there's much more sort of attention being paid uh, in other means to what's being said at, at the moment it's being said, as opposed to it's being reported later on in a paper or something like that. Did you, in your role as a speech writer, interact with that sort of media? I know you did some work you know, in the television media. Um, how did you see those two coming together? Yeah, I've, I've lived through a, a very fast evolution in the, in the media world. I started as an intern at CBS and was moved up to researcher writer. And then I was called back and, and I covered the 68 conventions. And, and particularly scary was the 1968 Chicago convention where people were very badly damaged by the police. I was called back to CBS to start doing election night. I did inaugural coverage, I did conventions. And this was the day when we had three networks and that was it, ABC, NBC, CBS. And we had these anchor men and women who were trying to bring us um, the facts and the news. Now, you know, it, it began with a 15 minute evening news after the Kennedy assassination, it went to half an hour of evening news and didn't change for a very long time. But during that time, Walter Cronkite became, you know, the most trusted man in America. And I had worked for Walter and, and, and knew him and greatly admired him. I don't think today we have anybody closely comparable uh, to the trust that, that Walter Cronkite generated. But the first real change was 24-hour news cycle. Now you have CNN and you have 
a 24-hour news cycle and you've got to fill it. And so you, you can't be reporting the news all the time. So eventually you develop these editorial shows. And the problem that happens, as, as we discussed in the book you talked about before, the call, is that people confuse the editorial segments uh, in round-the-clock news on Fox and CNN with real news, uh, the hard anchor reporting. And this confuses people. And eventually, with all the cable outlets over time, you could find a cable outlet that would support the wildest, craziest, false conspiracy that you could possibly have. And people have therefore been going to places that reinforce their own view of the world instead of exposing themselves to a true view of the world. And that, that's very difficult to deal with. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Craig Smith, author of his Confessions of a Presidential Speechwriter. You know, that, that sort of increasingly fragmented media and people turning to kind of conspiracy theories and their own individual ideological hobby horses is a sort of bugbear of our current moment. But it's not, I don't think it's entirely dissimilar from my sort of questions about the trajectory of your career. And one of them in particular is as the sort of 70s and the 80s roll on, the the right and the sort of hard right become more enamored of the you know religious moral authority and kind of the various issues that would have must have made it increasingly difficult to be a, a closeted gay person in the Republican Party. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, how how your feelings about the party changed or 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 you know how that sort of move in that direction affected, you know, both your work and your feelings about the party? Yeah, it started when Ronald Reagan began courting the Christian right. And and the reason he did that was one of the keys to Carter's success was that he was a born again Christian. And there was a big shift from 1976 when when the Christian right supported Carter to 1980 when they shifted and supported Ronald Reagan. And that became a, a landslide victory. And I remember uh, I, I was in a meeting. Uh, well, I was in a room with George Bush, George H.W. Bush, and a, a Christian right minister from the congressional district where George W. Bush was going to try to run for Congress. And George H.W. Bush was trying to talk this minister into supporting his son because they had seen what Reagan had done with the Christian right. And that minister eventually did not support his son, even though his son won the primary, he then lost the general election. And that just reinforced in Lee Atwater's mind, who was the campaign manager for George H.W. Bush, that they had to court the Christian right. And that made me very uncomfortable because there are ways in which I think the Christian right is not authentically conservative. They're more interested in their social agenda and that, that's fine for them, but that is going to infringe on minority rights in, in some cases. And what makes the difference between you know, fascism as democracy and Republican democracy is that we protect minority rights and the fascists don't. And the right wing scared me in that regard because I think in some cases they're, they're not interested in minority rights. Not to get too mired in contemporary issues when we're thinking about your memoir, but it does it does seem uh, in keeping with your work on the First Amendment to be thinking about like places like Florida where those sorts of minority rights are being directly assaulted by this exact sort of religious right desire, you know, to to quash them down in direct 
contradiction of the kind of conservatism you're talking about around First Amendment and freedom to speak and teach and do all of those kinds of things. I don't know that there's a question there, but it, but it is interesting to see it still playing out. I think it raises a question about rhetorical training, and that is, if, you, if you're going to want to reestablish history, re- rewrite history in a more accurate way that looks at how we treated indi- indigenous people and how badly we did, how we treated slaves and how badly we did, rhetorically, why don't you just say you're trying to correct history? If you start talking about something like critical race theory, the word critical and the word theory are not going to translate to the general public in a way that's understandable to them. And that's why I I think people who are, are trying to do these things really need some rhetorical training because rhetoric is all about adapting to an audience because you have to make the truth into something that people can understand. We need to come back to that if we're going to sell our ideas to a public that's so diverse uh, in our country. It's another thread that runs throughout the book is your sort of spiritual journey. Would you be willing to say a little bit about that? Yeah, I was born a Catholic. I, for five years, when my father was stationed uh, on naval bases on the East Coast, I was an altar boy. I learned the mass in Latin. Um, I was a very devout Catholic. I had a mild crisis of faith when I was in college. And luckily, my college roommate said, look, there's this guy teaching existentialism. Why don't you sit in on the course? This guy is really good. And so I sat in on the course of existentialism and became a follower of Fred Hagen. He was a wonderful professor. And, you know, he introduced me to the existentialism of Dostoevsky, uh, the the existentialism of Shakespeare. Uh, And those are very Catholic versions of existentialism. So for me, the wedding of existentialism with Catholicism saved the faith. And I've had spiritual experiences since uh, my depression which I lived with, which was probably caused by living in the closet, went away when I prayed and was kind of instructed to continue to write profusely. I think one of the keys to overcoming depression is being creative and forcing yourself to do creative things. And so, yeah, there, there's always been that spiritual journey. And, and the latest book, The Call, is about how eloquence can get people to the spiritual level. I think that's really the key to solving so many of our problems. If we were much more interested in the spiritual than the material, uh, I think the world would be a hell of a lot better place. Where does the coming out of the closet fit onto the trajectory of that of that journey? How did did it did it become untenable to like maintain the spirituality and the closeted sexuality, or what was the crisis there, and how did it resolve? My depression was cured in in 1991, and I write about that spiritual experience in, in the book. But by that time, my father was ill, and I had not come out to my father, and I didn't want to make him have any more pain. But I I resolved at that point that once my father passed away, uh, I would come out of the closet. And he passed away in 1996, and a few weeks later, uh, I came out to my friends and then to the campus community, and uh, we lived happily ever after. There's a lot of it. Sound it sounds quite like it was quite easy, but it must not have been, you know, completely, uh, completely trouble free. Was there was there any um, conflict? Did it change your teaching at all? Like what what was the difference between all of those years spent hiding and the the sort of time after where you were more open about things? Um, 
the coming out experience was very good. I only had one friend who broke off our friendship over it, uh, which was unfortunate. But most of everybody was extremely supportive. And, and I think that was great. And many students from that point on uh, then said, you know, you're my role model. You helped save my life. And, and I always felt a little guilty that I didn't come out earlier. You know, I could have come out after I left public life in 1988 when I became a professor on the campus at Cal State University Long Beach because that was a very safe place to be gay and uh, I, I didn't because of my family and my father and I think I'd reverse that decision now and, and try and explain to my father why this had to be done uh, given the very positive experiences I've had with students ever since. Not to plumb into too many deep regrets, but I wonder, do you, would it have been possible to be in public life as an out homosexual in the 80s? No, it, it, it would not. And, uh, you know, I was, I was always, I, I, my, one of the biggest risks I took was when we were going through the AIDS crisis and the Reagan administration was absolutely ignoring AIDS. Uh, even when Rock Hudson died and Reagan knew Rock Hudson and it was just a blind spot for Reagan. And I went to George H.W. Bush, who was much more sympathetic and without revealing that I was gay, although he probably guessed it, I made a case for doing something uh, about AIDS. And then he went to Reagan and the administration shifted its policy and finally began to do something. But yeah, it, w- it was a difficult thing to, to navigate. You know, another difficult thing to navigate to sort of see how many of the you've done so much. It's, it's like tantalizing to get into all of the different details. But you, you chaired a film studies department for a while where you were soliciting funding from some very well-known folks. Could you say a little bit about like how the entertainment industry collided with your career? Yeah, I, uh, I chaired four departments at Cal State University, Long Beach. Uh, if a department got in trouble, Uh, Sometimes they would, because I had built the communication studies department and been a very successful chair doing that, some departments would get in trouble and they'd say, can we borrow Craig Smith for a year? And uh, so I I went over and and helped journalism get reaccredited when they lost their accreditation. Uh, I went over to comparative literature and classics and helped them pull themselves together because they were having some feuds, shock, academic world with feuds. And then I was approached by the film department And I said, look, I've done these one-year stints, and it's not enough time. It takes longer than that, the hiring process and everything else. So if I come, I want to stay for three years. And uh, after three years, they asked me to stay another three years. So I was there for six years, and that got me very much involved, you know, with, with Hollywood, with the placement of our students, and so on and so forth. Steven Spielberg had come back to college to graduate from Cal State Long Beach, where he had started and he'd never finished his degree. So he came back, finished his degree, and then I went to Spielberg uh, and asked him for funding for the department because it needed funds very badly. It's it's a very expensive major and, you know, equipment is hard to come by. And he gave us a million five hundred thousand dollars while I was chair. I also got to go to the annual luncheon of the Golden Globes, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, because they gave grants to students and our students regularly got those grants and we'd be at a table with Dustin Hoffman or, or, you know, other stars. And it, 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 you know, that was, you know, really kind of fun to be stargazing and uh, in, in, in with the Hollywood crowd. But I, I had been in college and I, I talk about this in my book with Michael Douglas 
And Michael and I became friends way back during our junior year uh, in college and remain friends to this day. And so I had an inside look at Hollywood at a very young age. Uh, I remember his father, Kirk, taking Michael and I to watch a tennis tournament, you know, in Los Angeles at one point and sitting in a box with other stars. So people who read my book, Confessions, will see that there's something of a Forrest Gump quality to it, that I keep running into these various celebrities and have this kind of minor contact with them. Oh, well, you say minor contact, but with, you know, genuine material repercussions and, and spiritual ones too, you know, that, that funding that department and getting you in into the, all of these places to be at in these moments where you can be serving presidents and, and doing all of that kind of work. We haven't mentioned the, the work with Lee Iacocca or the Senate campaign, like whole, whole um, slew of fascinating experiences. Yeah, I mean, Senator Packwood, whose campaign I ran in 1980, and bless his heart, he's still alive, was one of the Republicans who was a, an advocate of a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to have an abortion. And he was endorsed by the National Association for Abortion Rights, one of the few Republicans to be on that side of the issue. And it, it, it was interesting because as a, a moderate Republican, Packwood just wrote off the right wing of the Republican Party and said, you know, when we go to the general election, they're going to vote for me because they have nowhere else to go. They're not going to vote for the Democrat and they don't sit on their hands. They, they come in. So his, his attitude toward the right was very different from Reagan's. I wonder, do you, you know, in all of these experiences and thinking about your training, did you, were you sufficiently prepared by reading rhetoric and training in communications and sort of classical theory to meet the moment? I was surprised at how prepared I was. It was not difficult. I, you know, had written speeches for myself. I'd never written for anybody else. But when I started writing for Ford, I just said, okay, pretend you're in a, a speech contest at, you know, original oratory as you were in college and see what you can do. And uh, the first speech I wrote uh, was a speech for the president to give at the Southern Baptist Convention. And you talk about walking into the lion's den. Those people love Jimmy Carter. And I, I, I thought the assignment of the speech to me was a kind of hazing. Uh, so I worked very hard on the speech, but I, it was not difficult for me to write these speeches because I was supplied with all the information I needed. I didn't even have to do my own research. That came from the, the research staff. And, and so when we went down to Norfolk and he delivered the speech and he was interrupted by applause 13 times, he was amazed that a speech could work this way. And it even got written up in the Washington papers as, you know, a, a triumph for Ford. So that was a turning point for me that I, now I knew I could do it and that the, that the tools that I brought to the situation were superior to the tools that people that didn't have my training brought to the situation. And it, and it went on from there. I mean, I, as I write about in the book, I was one of two speechwriters that was put in charge of doing the bicentennial speeches, just based on how successful the speeches that I was writing were going. And you mentioned um, critical race theory earlier, which at this moment brings to mind uh, one of the rights leading, I guess we could call him an intellectual, but I don't know that I would, um, this character, James Lindsay, who is kind of responsible in part for the right taking on the CRT banner and making it a kind of stamp of branding. And one of his other platforms, he said recently on Twitter, uh, is that in the future, uh, admitting to attending a university should be a mark of shame for anyone on the right, because now they're so thoroughly beholden to the left and they're such 
indoctrination camps for you know wrong thinking folks. I wonder, you know, as a person who spent your life in higher education on the on the right side of the aisle, what would you say to that kind of charge about the value of a university education and to a student who might want to do the kind of work that you were doing and needs that sort of training um, in this climate where it's being looked down upon? Yeah, it's it's a difficult question to deal with. I always thought that because I was a conservative, that I had to work a little harder uh, in the liberal arts. Uh, the liberal arts aren't named liberal arts for nothing. Um, it, it, it's it's a liberal place, and there isn't much you can do about that. I mean, there's this feeling that the common sense answer to the question is on the liberal side of the aisle, and and so I I had to work harder. The nice thing that happened in my field in communication studies was that all the journals about two years into my career went to blinding who the author was. Uh, I couldn't get published for anything. When people saw my name, they knew where I had come from. They knew I was a conservative Republican and I couldn't get articles published. Once the articles were blinded, my career took off. I even published an article on feminist theory because nobody knew. Uh, who the author was. And, you know, I've, I've published over 70 scholarly articles, 20 books. And I, I have found that the community, if you prove yourself, the academic community is open to you. The other thing I'd point out is I, I think students are more resilient and, and wiser than some of them, particularly Lindsay and, and his ilk indicate. Students don't like to be indoctrinated. They know what it is, they know when it's happening, and more than likely you're gonna drive students away by doing that. So uh, I, I, I think our students are more responsible than some of these people think. The other thing is that this movement, and part of what Lindsay's talking about is getting uh, parents involved in determining curriculum, and that's outrageous to me. Educational experts are the ones who should be determining curriculum. You don't know how to teach your kid, and the home teaching thing is all part of that. You know, let's just pull our kids out of this and teach them at home. And that tends to be a, a desocialization of children, an isolation of children. And I, I think they're just courting disaster. But allowing parents to determine curriculum is just silly. That needs to be turned over to state boards of education and, and let them consult with the experts in the field to educate our kids. It seems counterintuitive to the whole idea that we would have a, a public education system to have an informed populace to participate in this representative democracy, this idea that what we'll do is isolate them and educate them according to our own ideals and hope that that will somehow tilt the majority in our favor. Yeah, I mean, I go way back in my opposition to private schools, including Catholic schools. My sisters went to Catholic schools and they got out of there after one year, they couldn't stand it. The indoctrination and the physical punishment and all of that silliness. But we segregate people by having charter schools and by having private schools and by having home schools. And I, I just think that's totally antithetical to the melting pot that we were trying to achieve uh, when the country began. Any advice for the, for the college students starting out today? Yeah, I, I think it's very important that we teach critical thinking. You know how to sift evidence that you know when a source is valid and when the source is not valid and what makes one source better than another source. And how do we read, and, and in your field, you know this, how, how do we read a document to provide the best interpretation? Uh, hermeneutic methods are very important that students understand and learn. 
that they know how to build arguments. One of my fears in the academic world is that we're getting so far into uh, digging up ideologies and, and looking for underlying ideologies that we're not te teaching enough critical theory first. And then critical theory can teach you how to do that. I think that's important. I remember my freshman year, I walked into a, a comparative literature course. The, the course was called Bibleist Literature, and the instructor was Dewey Sturman. And the first words out of his mouth were, Jesus was a bastard and Mary was a whore. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe you don't belong in this class. And I thought, thank you for telling me that. I'm leaving. And I was out of that class. So professors have a right as long as they're in there. They have academic freedom as long as they're in that little can that they rattle around it called the, the syllabus. Once they get away from the syllabus, they can get in trouble. They don't have First Amendment rights inside the classroom. They have academic freedom. And the same is true of students. And that's a vastly misunderstood thing on our campuses. I mean, I, I've, I've gone in and helped campus after campus with crises where a professor has gone off on a bender attacking Trump or attacking, you know, Barack Obama or something like that it has nothing to do with their syllabus. And they think, well, I have First Amendment rights. I can do that. Well, you don't. Not in the classroom. All you have in the classroom is academic freedom, which is a pretty big area and a lot of freedom to pursue the ideas in your course. But you don't have uh, pure protected speech in the classroom. You know, I wonder if this is a good place to, I want to make sure that we touch on your First Amendment advocacy because you founded a, a foundation, a, a foundation, right, to, yeah. to do advocacy on behalf of the First Amendment. How, how did you come to that issue? And, and was it related to this question about academic freedom and you know, your work as a professor? Well, in, in 1982, as, as I was working for Senator Packwood at the Republican Senatorial Committee, he came to me and he said, some of the newspapers and a lot of the media are coming to me because they think that they need protection and reporters need protection. And there are certain government doctrines that infringe on their First Amendment rights. And I want to put together a foundation that investigates this and then repeals the legislation if it proves to be unconstitutional. And that's what we did. I was, you know, I was president of the Freedom of Expression Foundation for five years in Washington, and then I moved it to the campus at California State University, Long Beach. And that was basically our, our approach, was that anything that infringed on broadcasters' rights, and we, we focused on broadcasters because they didn't at that time have the same freedom that newspapers had. They do now, and that was one of the things that we brought about by repealing what was called the fairness doctrine, which really was the unfairness doctrine uh, at the time. So that got me in. I, I didn't know much about the First Amendment in 1982 when I started. I mean, I knew what it was and I knew what its principles were, but I didn't know the, the legal stuff behind it. And we got involved in amicus cases at the Supreme Court. We were involved in legislative battles. We fought all the way through at the Federal Communications Commission to get them to vote with us and repeal the law. And it was just fascinating to coordinate all of this activity in the courts, on the commission, and in the Congress. The fairness doctrine was that idea that you have to give equal time, right? If I'm talking about you know, an issue, I have to present both sides in an equal amount of time. Yeah, it, 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 it was even more complicated than that. It was well-meaning. In, in 1943, the Supreme Court upheld a ban on broadcasters editorializing at all. They were not allowed to editorialize. To relieve that, in 1949, the Federal Communication Commission instituted the Fairness Doctrine, which said, in the, if you're going to operate in the public interest, which you're obligated to do, you have to address important issues in your community 
and you have to allow contrasting points of view on those issues. So you had two problems there. One, what are the important issues and who determines them? And then who do I give those voices to, to determine what the contrasting points of view are? And you had, for example, when ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment came along, it was doing just fine. It looked like it was going to be adopted. And suddenly Phyllis Schlafly of the Equal Forum started instituting fairness doctrine suits against broadcasters for not allowing her group to advocate against the Equal Rights Amendment. And that had a chilling effect on advocates for the Equal Rights Amendment getting on the air and broadcasters even touching the issue. They didn't want to bring it up because then they have to give equal time to Phyllis Schlafly and then other people would sue and it, it went back and forth. So it was a well-intentioned law that got used to chill free speech and, and we finally got it repealed. And then it became moot when, when cable came along. It, it never applied to cable. And so it was only over-the-air broadcasters that it applied to, and nobody listens to that anymore. It's all, it's all cable stations. And even them diminishing returns in terms of people watching them now. What does that look, work of the foundation look like when it becomes associated with the university? You said you moved it from D.C. out, out to California. Right. Once we achieved our legislative goal, uh, I wanted to convert it to a pu- pure research operation, uh, which I did. So we no longer engaged in legislative advocacy. We would inform people if they came to us, if people had a lawsuit and they wanted to inform. Um, We changed the name to the Center for First Amendment Studies, which is still there. And if you go to the Center for First Amendment Studies online, there's all kinds of research papers. It'll tell you what is libel, what is slander, what is hate speech, what is academic freedom. There's just a ton of material there on the First Amendment available for uh, for downloading. Do you have thoughts on the state of the First Amendment today? Well, I've always been an advocate of the First Amendment and it just becomes such a complicated issue. You have, for example, take the example of, of, of a company like Facebook, the Federal Communications Communication in, their, in, in one of their communication revisions, Section 230 of the law says that the host whether it's Facebook or Twitter or any of those, cannot be sued if somebody libels somebody else using their platform. You can sue the person that libeled you, but you can't hold Twitter accountable. And I I think that's when a company gets as big as Twitter and now being taken over by Elon Musk, uh, or gets as big as Facebook, they certainly have enough money to check what's being put up on on their websites. Uh, a newspaper is liable, even if it's an advertisement. If I place an advertisement in the New York Times and it libels somebody, the New York Times can be sued, let alone me. And so I think you should be able to sue Facebook or Twitter uh, if they put something up that damages your image. Then on the other hand, though, we have the sort of Elon Musk even is falling into that sort of, I mean, I think they think it's a kind of free speech absolutism where, you know, I should be able to say whatever I want on this platform whenever I want and any attempt to prevent that or, um, you know, banish me from accessing the platform is a direct impingement on my First Amendment right. Yeah, I mean, as I said before, I mean, we don't have full freedom of expression. The, the, The courts, I think, have rightly said that in the national interest, and, and in, in the name of national security, certain speech can be proscribed. Uh, and, and certainly you can't defame someone 
Now, if, if, you, if you treat the site, Facebook, as a common carrier, like you would a telephone, then you have no recourse to go after them and, and they have no responsibility for what they put up. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's wrong. I think they should take some responsibility for that, just as the New York Times does. Especially when you consider that it's that it's all algorithmically derived, like the platform is determining, like yeah. has an editorial feature, like it shows you particular kinds of things and decides, you know, what to promote in some way or other. It's hard to argue that it is that it's just a, a non-acting, you know, intermediary between communications of individuals when it's having that sort of filtering function. Yeah, I, I remember back in the 70s when they started doing subliminal advertising that there was in, in certain programs or in movies, there would be a few frames that went by that you didn't actually see, but they registered in your brain. And it was like, you're thirsty, go buy a Coca-Cola. Uh, and once that was uh, unmasked, people were furious and that ended. And now we have the same thing with these algorithms that I think most of the public don't understand how they work. But you know, when you punch in something, if you're looking for a shoe, it's going to send you to the store that it knows is near you and, and uh, has a style that you uh, have been talking about online. All this information has been collected about you that profiles you and, and, and makes you a target for influencers and others online. Well, Craig, it's been, that's the end of our hour. We blew through 40 minutes there. Obviously couldn't do justice to the whole entire book, but I think we got a pretty good chat in about, you know, the career and the training and the relationship between the two. Is there anything you want to make sure that we hit on as we sort of move toward a conclusion? Well, I just think that one, one thing that if you can use the gifts that you've been given to give yourself agency, you should do that. I never regretted being homosexual. I knew I was different, but I tried to use that as an agency to help me through life. Uh, as I said, I didn't always make the best decisions, but I didn't look at it as a disadvantage. I, I looked at it as an advantage. Uh, it defined my individuality. It gave me agency. And I don't think I would have had as, as successful a life uh, if I had been uh, a straight person. Even having to, to keep it secret and to conform yourself to these situations where you, like, you, you must have known that you wouldn't have been welcome, it, it still gave you a kind of agential feeling? Yeah, I'm happy for people today where there's much less prejudice, but it's, it's still out there. I know closeted people and I know why they're closeted. We're not all the way there yet. We made a big step forward with allowing gay people to get married, uh, lesbians to get married, fighting for trans rights. We need to get to the point where we understand there is just a broad spectrum of se sexuality that's not just gay and straight. There's all kinds of degrees. There's bisexuality. And the more tolerant we become and the more we respect that spectrum, the more we're going to say everybody's different. Everybody's an individual. Everybody has a different design. And that gets us away from the groups that we get defined by the group. And that, that's a, just a, a very bad disservice to the individualism in all of us. Yeah. Well, Craig, I mean, I think that's a great place to leave it. There's a lot in the conversation and there's a lot more in the book about your many um, really fascinating experiences and your opportunities to put your training into use. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat a little bit with me about it today. You're very welcome.
Craig Smith's Confessions of a Presidential Speechwriter is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find Craig on the History Rated R podcast and at the underscore retor on Instagram. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of the MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.